want to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. By turning there, I need someone to remind me before we depart that we need to have a brief business meeting. And so, Brother Wally, it's up to you to remind me. And if he doesn't remember, somebody remind him. All right, we just need to vote on taking on a couple new missionaries, get that taken care of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us, given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We want to continue tonight on this matter of holiness And we want to give an overview. We talked about the basis of holiness last week. We want to give an overview to this matter of holiness tonight. And uh, for the next couple weeks, we're dealing with it in the matter of practical Christian living. It is one of those areas where unfortunately for too many people, when you start talking about practical holiness, it just simply conjures up ideas of some kind of drudgery and defeat And how can you live a victorious life at all? Uh, But really, the victorious life is not the key. The victorious life is just a product, a byproduct of obedience. Now, I want to review a few things that we talked about last week before we get into the message tonight. Uh, How often Christians get discouraged with their lives because they feel that they do not measure up to the Christian standards that they've set for themselves. We have a battle. Now, God tells us about that battle. He tells us what it is. He tells us why it is all of that. So it's not like we don't know, but we operate so much on our feelings instead of on faith in the truth of the word of God that we end up defeated. People get defeated because they did something or responded in a certain way. And uh, they get so uh, discouraged by that. They say, "Well, well, what's the use? What's just the use and keep trying? It seems like all of my Christian life, there's been this battle. Well, that's true because you understand before you got saved, you didn't have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. The flesh was basically having free reign. There was no reason for there to be a battle going on. But once you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God did come to live within you. And he has certain desires for you for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Before I got saved, as I've told you many times, I had a very foul mouth. It did not bother me as a lost person to say uh, bad words, to say wrong words. Uh, It was just expected. I didn't think anything else of it, just like most people out there today. It's amazing how they can cuss worse than sailors. I know it's hard to believe for those of you who know any sailors. Uh, but they can, they can cuss so bad. And you wonder, why on earth do they do that? You go, for instance, you go to the golf course, you'll meet somebody for the first time, they're cussing, they don't even know you. They just think everybody is going to like their cussing or expect it to be done. Uh, it's amazing. But they're lost. 
Now, whereas it didn't bother me before I got saved, after I got saved, it would have just absolutely destroyed me to have a cuss word come out of my mouth. What was the difference? I saved, had the Holy Spirit of God within me now. The flesh no longer has free reign. And we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. We know that God expects every Christian to live a holy life. Holiness is not just expected, but it is the promised birthright for every believer. Now, I want to give you a couple of the statements that I made last week. I want you to get a hold of these things. Uh, To live holy is to live in conformity with the moral precepts of the Bible. That's putting uh, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. The Bible's teaching on holiness is not for our defeat, but primarily for God's glory and for our best. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's teaching on how we ought to live is for our best? Because the reality is there are a lot of Christians who act like it's not. I believe what God says about how we're to live, whether it's what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do, that it's God's best. Uh, The will of God is not that hard in most areas. All we got to do is read our Bible and we see the will of God. There's a whole lot of things people struggle over and it's because they've set the word of God aside. If God says this is the way we're supposed to be, then that's the way we're supposed to be. Uh, So we've got some problems and here they are. We talked about them last week. Our attitude towards sin usually is self-centered instead of God-centered. It's how does this sin affect me? Well, I feel bad about it. I feel horrible. I feel miserable. Oh, wait a second. Uh, you're, not, you're not the one that's primarily concerned here. Sin is against God. Remember when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he said, God forbid that I should sin so great sin against God. When David confessed his sin, he said in Psalm 51, uh, against thee and thee only, have I sinned? It is a God matter. When we have sinned, we have disobeyed him. The primary thing is not how do I feel about it. I mean, after all, that sounds like our whole woke society. Somebody does a great play in sports and the reporter comes up and the first question they ask is, how'd you feel about hitting that home run? How'd you feel about dropping that ball? Who cares? Feelings got nothing to do with it. If you hit the home run, run scored. If you drop the ball, you drop the ball, probably another run scored against you. And nobody else, none of the fans care how you feel. They just care that that run scored. Your team lost the game. That's just extra right there. Don't get me started. A second thing we mentioned last week is that we do not take sin seriously. We're more concerned about the size of the sin than we are the fact of sin. Sin is the problem. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Whose law? It's God's law. So it makes it so bad. We don't take sin seriously. Matter of fact, when we do wrong, we have all kinds of excuses for why we did wrong instead of just admitting it. Third thing, God's holiness is the standard, not our culture, not even our Christian culture. Our standard for righteous living and holy living is not the culture of American Christendom 
or even IFBism. The standard is found in God's holiness. Holiness, the fourth thing, holiness is not an option for the believer. It's not an option. If I want to be, then it will be. No. Number five, most of us have a cultural holiness, how we fit in with the Christians around us. But the standard of holiness comes from none other but God himself. And you remember, I mentioned to you, the standard for holiness is not this book. The standard for holiness is God. It's his holiness that is the standard. This book reveals to us how his holiness translates into our living. But the fact that he is holy and he said, be therefore holy, even as I am holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is God's holiness that is the standard. And finally, we are made holy in our standing before God through Christ. We are called to be holy in our daily lives. And there is a difference between the two. I want to say it again. We are made holy in our standing before God through Christ. We are called to be holy in our daily lives. Now, I want to give you two main truths tonight as this basic overview. Next week, we'll be talking about the battle for holiness in our lives. When you got saved, you got a new king. Even in the passage that we read tonight, he mentioned in the passage that we are made ambassadors. Well, an ambassador belongs to a particular kingdom and is answerable to the leader of that kingdom. Well, when I got saved, I no longer am under the flesh and the devil, I am under God. Jesus Christ is my king. And the Bible says of him in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, and get this, who knew no sin. Our new king is holy. We've never had a holy president in this country or a holy governor. We've never had a holy Congress, we've never had anything like that. This is a totally different king than anything this earth has known. It is Jesus Christ, and he is absolutely holy. And for some reason, it seems to be difficult for us to see Christ as holy as the Father. I mean, let's face it. Most of our society has a picture of Jesus with long flowing hair, kind of sissified features, who really doesn't take a whole lot of serious thought about people's sin. That's their idea of Jesus. No, Jesus is absolutely holy. My new king, Jesus Christ, is absolutely holy. In Hebrews 4.15, tempted uh, in all parts like we are, yet without sin. In 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, in him is no sin. In Acts 3, 12, Peter says, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto you. In Psalm 45 and verse 7 and Hebrews 1, 9, the scripture says that he is one who loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And you understand that Jesus Christ hates iniquity. 
He hates iniquity in my life. That's why Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. We have to quit making excuses. There are things that we allow in our life, don't think much of it, that Jesus hates. Now, he's my king. I've been bought with a price. I'm to glorify him, my body, and my spirit, which are God's. John 8, 46, he could say to the Pharisees, which of you convinceth me of sin? For you see, Jesus had no sin. 1 Peter 3, 18, he's called the just one. He is the just one. He's the absolutely perfect and holy one. 1 Peter 1, 19, he's called a lamb without blemish and without spot. And when the disciples were praying to the Father in Acts chapter 4 and verse 30, they called him that holy child Jesus. He is holy. Now, when you realize that, you'll begin to give the respect that the holy one deserves, much like what takes place in Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to turn back to it. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm convinced there are a lot of people who talk about Jesus who don't have a clue what he's like. They just don't have a clue. And if you miss the part that he's holy, then you missed him completely. Now notice in this, Isaiah gets a vision of the temple in heaven. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And the one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. So he gets this vision of heaven. He's in the throne room and he sees the beast flying around the Lord and the cry on their lips is not grace, 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 God is grace. The cry on their lips is not love, 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 God is love. The cry on their lips is holy, holy, holy. How did that affect Isaiah? Well, look at verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then it says, then one flew, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. See, the truth is, the closer you get to God, the more you realize his holiness, the less you realize it, the farther away from God you are. Even Job, Job talked a lot about God during the book of Job. But after having God come on the scene and rebuke him for about four chapters, we find that Job's cry is this. He says, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. Yeah. Well, when you get close to him, you realize how unworthy you are. That's part of being close to him. These people that are flipping about how they talk about Jesus, I think they're thinking of someone else. So I, my new king is absolutely holy. Now, what does that do for me? 
Well, one of the things that it does for me, besides realizing, you know, the Bible says, therefore, if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But as I realize my sinfulness and my wickedness, in all of that, I also have a sense of security because my king is holy. And that sense of security is bound up in this. He can't lie. He has made certain promises to me as a believer. And although I don't deserve to have these promises fulfilled in me, I know that he will because he is holy. And now the security that's there is powerful. So I am accepted by God through the righteousness of Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The righteousness that we get from him described for us in Romans chapter 3 and verses 19 through 26. So he would make, he'll make statements like this in John chapter 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I know that's true because he's holy. I'm secure in him. I know I'm going to heaven. I, I know I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I know I am going to heaven because he keeps his word. John 6, 37, all that the father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me. I will in no wise cast out for no reason Will they ever cast me out? I belong to him. How do I know he's going to keep that? He's holy. He has to. That is his nature. There is security in that for the believer. So I don't get go through life worrying about whether or not uh, I may slip and fall. I, I, I may end up saying something or thinking something I shouldn't think and lose my salvation and th- then die before I get a chance to repent. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I don't have to worry about that. Man, praise God. I have a new king. He's not like any of the kings of any of the kingdoms that have ever been on this earth. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And my king's life is my example for me. I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2. And the scripture says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Now look at this. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. I mentioned Sunday night, I think it was, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, be ye followers of God as dear children. That word followers there, the, the Greek word, we get our English word mimic from that, be mimickers of God. In other words, copy God. Be followers of God. Be like God. Well, how do I know what God's will is? I've got the word of God to tell me. And Jesus always obeyed God's word. Uh, his meat was to do the will of him that sent him. And so if I do God's will and follow God's word, then I know that I'm going to be following Jesus because he always followed God's word. That ought to be the desire for my life. 
So when Paul could say, follow me even as I also follow Christ, well, he's following Christ. So if I follow Paul, who's following Christ, then I've got to be following Christ too. Doesn't matter who's second in line, third in line, fourth in line. We know the head of the line is Jesus Christ. And as long as we keep following him, we're in good shape. Now we're going to heaven whether we follow him or not. But it's not just about heaven. In heaven I have security, yes, because he's fulfilled his promise. And when I stand before him, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed that he didn't get from me what he deserves, and he deserves far more than I could ever give him. Jesus said of himself in John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In John 4, 34, he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. In John 8, 29, for I do always those things that, no, don't notice that. He said, for I do always those things that please him. That was Jesus. Jesus is my king. Since he always did those things that pleased the father, if I want to please Jesus, then I'm going to do the things that please the father as well. The will of God for my life has got to be supreme. The question that each of us must ask ourselves, am I doing the things that please God? I can't answer that for you, but you can answer it. If you know the word of God at all, you can answer it. Have you put goals and plans and your practices, your daily life under that searchlight of the word of God? Are you obeying God? If you're not obeying God, then you need to get right about it. And I thank God because he can't lie. He's still going to heaven if you're saved. So are you living to do the things that please him? We have a new king. We have a new sovereign that is over us in our salvation. Now go over to Romans chapter 6. We not only have a new king, but we are part of a new kingdom. And it is his kingdom. You'll notice in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. All right, so I have a new king and a new kingdom, and here's the rub. Most people basically want to be different. There is some desire for holiness, but we don't want to be fanatics about it. It's amazing to me what people are willing to be fanatics about. They'll paint their body up and be on national TV at a football stadium where millions of people around the country can see their big fat guts sticking out with, you know, words roll tide on their chest or War Eagle, or just name any other school, and somehow that's supposed to be all right. I think that's a sick person. He doesn't call on us to do things like that, just have a life that's dedicated to him. Discouragement with these verses, which offer hope but seem impossible, especially when we've struggled with certain sins that we never seem to get the victory over. And what happens is we read these victorious living books and still struggle with certain sins. So we get defeated. 
Now, I want you to think about this a moment. And I don't know how it is now. I haven't followed baseball all that much in the last 30 years, but I'll tell you how it used to be. It used to be that the man who is known for hitting the most home runs ever in the major leagues, that was Babe Ruth, was the same man who also struck out more times than any person who had played the game. As a matter of fact, he had struck out probably four times to every one time that he hit a home run. Now, he is a very gifted individual. Didn't look like it. I mean, if you look at any of the old pictures of him, I mean, he, he had, seemed to have a fat belly and looked more like a Santa Claus without a beard than some kind of professional athlete, but nobody could hit the ball like him. And he set so many records with all that he did. Now, think about the thousands of times that this man went to the plate. Out of the thousands of times he went to the plate, I think it was 615 times, something like that, he knocked the ball out of the park and circled the bases. But over 2,000 times, he struck out and just turned around and walked back to the dugout. Now, it's funny, all those strikeouts did not keep him from going up to bat again. That doesn't count the double plays that he hit into. Doesn't doesn't uh, give account for all the other outs that he made. Uh, but I mean, to strike out, to stand there, couldn't hit the ball. Now the man had an amazing batting average. It was well over three hundred, which was unbelievable to be able to strike out that much time and still have a high batting average like that. But the point is this: here was man, here was a man who strove to be his best when he was out there in the field. But there were times, a lot of times, when he messed up, didn't keep him from trying again. Now, he'd do that for a stupid baseball game. We have our God who has provided for us a freedom and dominion that makes it so we're no longer under the dominion of the flesh because the old man is crucified with him. Okay, I failed three times today. I, I, I had some wrong thoughts. I, I got angry and, I, I, you know, I, I didn't respond well to somebody. Okay, well, I'm discouraged now. What's the point in even trying? Well, my king. That's the point, getting up to bat again. My king. All right, so you fail. I see, it doesn't make any sense with all that Christ did for us. Why would we get discouraged and quit seeking to live for him just because we've messed up? He hasn't messed up. I'm still redeemed. He's still taking me to heaven. I ought to want to keep serving him. Now, we're going to go through part of this again in Romans chapter 6. But I read a, I read a little couple paragraphs here that I thought were fairly interesting that kind of explain what people who have gone through, who get discouraged about the times that they know that they have failed the Lord in their responses or something that they've done or desires that they've had that they shouldn't have had. And then immediately they'll swallow some of this victorious living nonsense and feel like they've been set free only to find out it had, nothing's changed. 
Here's what this author said. He said, after experiencing a great deal of failure with our sinful nature, we are told that we have been trying to live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. We need to stop trying and start trusting. We need to let go and let God. We're told that if we just turn our sin problem over to Christ and rest in his finished work on Calvary, he will then live his life in us and we will experience a life of victory over sin. Having experienced failure and frustration with our sin problem, we're delighted to be told that God has already done it all and that we only need to rest in Christ's finished work. After struggling with our sins to the point of despair, this new idea is like a life preserver to a drowning man, almost like hearing the gospel for the first time. But after a while, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we discover we're still experiencing defeat at the hand of our sinful nature. The victory seemingly promised us still eludes us. We still struggle with pride, jealousy, materialism, impatience, and lust. And then we wonder what is wrong. Why can't I experience the victory described in all the books that others seem to have experienced? And then we again begin to despair. Now, we really don't need the answers that are found in the victorious living books. We need the answer to the situation from the word of God. Now, in the passage in Romans chapter 6, notice in verse 12, he says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now, notice the statement, let not sin. That sounds like whoever he's writing to has a responsibility. Not only do they have a responsibility, but they have an ability. They have the ability not to let sin reign. And they have the responsibility to keep it from reigning. Once you get that, this is you, this is me. We have the ability not to let it rain, and we have the responsibility not to let it rain. The experience of holiness is not a gift like justification. Remember, we are made uh, holy before God in Jesus Christ. But the practical holiness calls for some decisions on our part. So we go back to verses 1 and 2. Let's just walk through this a little bit. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? Okay, have you messed up at all any time? Yeah, okay. Well, but we're saved by grace, all right? Does that make grace abound when I mess up? Uh, should I continue in sin then? God forbid. Shouldn't happen. How, how shall we? Notice, how shall we that are, what are we? Dead to sin. Continue any longer therein. We are dead to sin. So how should we continue any longer therein? He goes on. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, here we go. Knowing this, this is something we know. It's not something we have to do. This is something we know. 
You know, in Romans 8, 28, he says, we know. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, them are called according to his purpose. We know that. We do know that, don't we? We know that. Well, this is something else that we know. What do I know? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So our, I know that's taken place. That's a spiritual truth. To deny it is to deny spiritual truth, which creates a whole other problem for us. For he says, he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, and that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now, he's got something else for us to do then. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon that. Reckon that. Yeah, I know there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit, but that doesn't mean we have to lose all the battles. Matter of fact, we don't have to. When I was lost, that was one thing, but I'm not lost anymore. I'm saved. I have the Holy Spirit of God living within me. I can make the right decisions because I'm to reckon it to be so that the old man's been crucified. Then he says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. Now, again, that's a responsibility and an ability. I'm not to let it rain in my mortal body. Now, you can say what you want about Alcoholics Anonymous. I I don't have any doubt it's helped a lot of drunks over the years, and I'm not being unkind. Uh, I'm not trying to be unkind anyway. Some people would think I'm being unkind about this. Just please understand, the Bible doesn't say anything about alcoholism or alcoholics. The idea of an alcoholic is somebody who can't help it. That they have some kind of germ or gene or chromosome that makes them pick up a bottle and drink it. Now, the Bible doesn't have any help for alcoholics, but it does have help for drunkards. And that's what God calls them in the scripture. Now, for a lost man, yeah, you know, one of the things the Alcoholics Anonymous would tell them, um, you're an alcoholic, and even though you may not be drinking right now, you'll always be an alcoholic. Well, that's not what God says when in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he talks about drunkards, he says, Know ye not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. He didn't say such are some of you. He said such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. And, and it, I mean, he's made it very plain. That may have been what you are, but you're saved now. You don't have to do that now. You can make a choice not to go ahead and take the drink or whatever the problem may be. So he says, don't let it happen. Then he says... Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't yield. Now, here's the guy. He's had trouble with booze. And so he gets out a bottle of beer out of the fridge, sticks it there on the table and says, I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to drink it. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to drink it. What's it doing in the fridge? Why is it on the table? But as long as he sits there and plays with it, he's going to drink it. What he has to do 
bust the bottle, pour it out in the sink and throw it out and don't go to the store and get another one. If he, if, if he does that, if he busts it, gets rid of it, throws it out, that's it. It doesn't go back to the place where they serve it. Doesn't sit there and look at it. Then he won't drink again. And he does have the power to do that if he's saved. He does have the power. to. He doesn't have to take another drink. You say, preacher, aren't you being awful unkind to this? I'm not being unkind at all. Here's the answer. Here's how you get over it. Here's how you break it. If we continue in sin, it is because of our will. Because we are no longer under the dominion of the flesh. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. Before I got saved, according to Ephesians 2.2, 2, we followed the ways of the world. In Acts 26.28, we were under the power of Satan. In Colossians 1 and verse 13, we were under the dominion of darkness. In Romans 6.17, we were slaves to sin. After we got saved, Romans 6.18, we've been set free from sin. Colossians 1.13... We've been rescued from the power of darkness. In Acts 26, 18, we've turned from power of Satan to the power of God. Before, because we were slaves, slaves to sin, we acted like slaves. And unfortunately, when we were lost, we developed sinful habits. And the flesh would like to get back to those sinful habits. But what do we do? Walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what the scripture says. Although we've been set free, this flesh still has influence. Now, in Uganda, Africa, for the last 30-some years, they have had President Museveni as their president, and the country has done extremely well during that time. Before him was Idi Amin, and Idi Amin was, you know, murdered a bunch of his own people. It was a horrible situation, all of that. You know... The people who followed Idi Amin and people who did not like Museveni, they didn't just go away. But they had to change their tactics. So it became more of a rebel thing. In different parts of the country, there would be rebels that would fight. And they had to go to a type of guerrilla warfare. Well, hey, when I got saved, guess what? Suddenly this flesh no longer has the power that it had. But that doesn't mean it stopped warring. It still is what it is. It just can't do the power. But boy, I'll tell you what, over in James chapter 1, he tells us that we are drawn away of our own lust. And because of our own lust, we give in to that, then we're going to give in to something else. And eventually it brings forth sin and eventually it brings forth death. But understand, the battle doesn't end. You say, well, I sure would like it to not be so hard. That's coming. That's coming in heaven. In heaven and throughout all eternity, you'll never have to deal with it again. But now you get to show in your life the powerful working of the Lord Jesus Christ when he saved you. And that you get an opportunity to show the world that yes, when he saves a person, he changes a person. And you can be that testimony for Christ that you ought to be. I'll guarantee you that all over this part of Alabama, there are people who have seen folks 
make a profession of faith, and then going back to their cussing or their drinking or something else. And people look at them and say, well, that's being a Christian. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, why don't you determine, because God has made it so you can, since the old man's been crucified with Christ, why don't you determine in your heart that the most important thing for you is you're going to be a good testimony of what Christ has done in your life. You've got the power to do it. If you're going to sit though and just think about all that sinful stuff all the time, you're going to, you're going to live in defeat instead of victory. Well, what about though when I lose my temper or I say something I shouldn't say? All right, you struck out. Get back in the batter's box, take another swing. It's not the time to give up. It's the time to keep living for him. And then living for him, that's where you'll see victory. And it's in obedience where you please him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Use these things in our lives, I pray, to help us to understand that even with our failures in life, you've given us so many victories. You've said if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, may we walk according to your perfect will, I pray. And bless in our brief business meeting, I ask, for I pleaded in Jesus' name, amen.